Praise the Lord. Amen. I just feel like the Holy Spirit is just wanting us to have a holy ambition here this morning. Uh, the song that uh, Sister Miranda led right there at the end about wanting to know him more, wanting to know his heart, goes right along with my message. And then, of course, this drama was so powerful. And uh, we are just thankful that the Lord's setting us up for a holy visitation. How many believe that? Amen. I just want to make one comment. Those of you that are uh, needing to know about voting, uh, Chuck then talked about this, but this is vitally important. There's so much information in here. It gives you everything that each candidate believes, what they voted on in the past, what their platform stands for. It gives you to where you can make up your mind as a Christian how to vote biblically in this next election. It's got a lot of information. When you get done with it, we do ask you to give it to somebody else, give it to a friend, give it to a neighbor. They may throw it away. That's up to them. But we want to get as much information as we can out as believers. We have the, uh, we got a responsibility to vote our, our God-given conscience that he's given to us and vote morally and vote for the best candidate, not for the party. Amen? All right. God bless you. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 22. We're going to get right into the word of the Lord this morning because he's really wanting to speak to us here today. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verse, starting with verse 22, and while I'm turning there, we want you to continually to be praying for the Talley family. Uh, they've lost Brother Talley this week. We've done the funeral last Friday, and we just need to continue not to forget them after the loss. So much of the time we're there all the way up to the loss, and then when everything goes back to normal, they're just sitting there, and they're all forgotten, and we don't want to forget our loved ones that's lost people in death to be praying for Sister Talley and for the family and for the children. And just remember them. Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 22. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town, and when he had spit in his, on his eyes, he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up, and he said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to anyone in that town. I'm going to ask Brother Bill. Bill, would you ask the Lord's blessing please on the word this morning? Amen. If you'll be patient with me just a little bit here this morning, I'm going to try to just build a foundation and try to explain to you what is actually taking place within the scripture. So much times we just read these scriptures and we think, well, that's just an event that happened. But really there's a reason for every event that takes place in the word of God. So much of the time we just read through it and we never pay attention of what is actually taking place. And we have to study it in order to get insight from the Lord of what he was wanting to reveal, not only to, the, to his disciples, but even to us in this 21st century. First of all, I want to talk to you this morning about being the man in the middle. It has always been said that the man in the middle is a man that is in the most undesirable or most uncomfortable place. For example, have you ever been between two opposing arguments and all of a sudden both of the people that are arguing want you to take their side? Have you ever been in a pickup with two fat men and you're the man in the middle? I want to tell you, I have. It's a very uncomfortable thing. And I can tell you the two fat men that I was with. Amen. But the man in the middle is known as the odd man out. 
The man in the middle will be liked by some and he will also be despised by some. He absolutely cannot win. And that's sometimes the way that we find ourselves when we find ourselves in the middle. If I do, I'm doomed. And if I don't, I'm doomed. Have you ever been there? We've all faced about being put into positions of being placed within the middle. And most certainly, we've all heard about the middle child syndrome. This is where you have the oldest, the firstborn, who seems to be always born with privileges. He can do what he wants to do because he's older. He gets to stay out later because he's older. It makes you to make me sick. I was the baby of the family. And every time I want to do something, you're just too young. I'd get so mad because Keith, my oldest brother, he had privileges. And then you also have the youngest, the baby like me, that was spoiled rotten. Amen. I know that I am, and I thank God that I am. But then there's the middle-aged child that sometimes feels left out or forgotten because he looks at himself as the in-between child. They say that birth order can play a role in a child's development, and I believe that. But Jesus, did you know what? He found himself in the middle. Not only did he find himself in the middle in the crisis of life throughout the scripture, but he found himself in the middle by hanging on the middle cross. One thief beside him wanted him to come off of the cross and to prove who he was. He said, if you be the son of God, cast yourself down and, and save yourself and save us also. But the other thief on the other side just simply said, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. It is here that he could not please either one of them really uh, without hurting one of the other's feelings or uh, neglecting the other, but Jesus had to make the right decision. And it's in our text that we see a man that was caught in the middle. However, his middle was a different kind of a middle. It was a different kind of a row. It is in the middle, he was in the middle between two opposing forces, the natural and the spiritual, the flesh and the spirit. It's between whether or not he would have doubt or faith or whether he would be have healing or whether he would live in infirmity. It was all about being partial or being whole. It was about incomplete or being complete. It was about rejection or receiving. It was about sin or not sin. It was about understanding or not understanding. And this is one of the most miserable places to be in. The middle place is a place of torment. It leaves you in never having a clear direction or a determined destiny. It never has a clear purpose for your life. It's not being in, but yet not being out. You're just stuck within the middle. It's a place of struggle. It's a place of chaos. It's a place of disorder. It's a place of confusion. It is a realm where nothing seems to happen or nothing seems to take place and it doesn't make sense. Have you ever been there? Have you been in that place where it seems like you're straddling a fence? And let me tell you, if you straddle a fence long enough, the bob wire is going to get you. It's a bad place to be. It's being caught up in two worlds at the very same time. It's a place where we're caught between two opinions and we don't know what to do. It's called double-mindedness. And James says, don't think that a double-minded man shall receive anything from the Lord. And I'm afraid that all too often that's where we are at in the body of Christ a lot of times. Where are them people within the middle? We're placed within that place where we halt between two opinions a lot of times. We straddle fences and we're, we just don't know. We're tugged on both sides. We're at war. We're at chaos. We don't know what to do. We're confused. And we find ourselves there so many times as believers. If you say you've never found yourself there, then you're a liar and the truth ain't in you because we've all faced that. But this man in our text gives a clear picture of where a big majority of, of the church world finds themselves in this thing called kingdom living. We are living in a kingdom, those of us that are saved. How many knows that? If you are a child of God, you're living within a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. You're birthed into a kingdom. Your citizenship is not in the United States as you suppose it may be in the natural, but you're citizens of heaven. You're strangers. You're pilgrims. You 
you're just passing through. You belong to a different world. You belong to a different kingdom. How many would rather be a, uh, belong to the kingdom of God than to the United States of America? Of course we would, amen? And that's who we are as believers. We're birthed into the mighty kingdom of God. But when it comes to being birthed in that kingdom, many of us don't know how to react. We don't know how to live within that kingdom. How do we survive? How do we live? What is our responsibility? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to function? How are we supposed to act? We've got to learn that as believers. And prior to the text, we see that Jesus had just fed 4,000 men with seven loaves of bread and a few fish, according to the word of the Lord. He performs a mighty miracle before the disciples and the Jewish people by literally feeding thousands and thousands of these Gentile people. And after this great miracle, we see him rebuking the Pharisees for them coming to him and seeking for a sign. He says in verse 12 of this same chapter, right up above our text, he says, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. I wish I could preach right there. I was going to just talk a lot there, but the Lord just kind of made me move on. But I want to tell you something. He came to the place where he went, oh, they wore him out. Have you ever been around people that you just want to, oh, that's where he was at. He just sighed. He's wore out with these, uh, these Pharisees. And he says in his spirit, he's sighing and he says, and he groans within his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And then we see not, that did not stop. Jesus then has to rebuke his very own disciples for their failure to believe after seeing the miracle also. Matter of fact, he tells them and he warns them in verse 15, he says, and he charged them saying take heed and be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And I would like to preach on the two different thoughts there the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod but we don't have time. Other words he was saying don't you become like the Pharisees and embrace their beliefs and get caught up in their opinions and don't you embrace their thoughts. He said you better beware of them Pharisees. And they had just begun in their own action begin to reveal that the Pharisees spirit of unbelief and doubt had already begin to enter into their very own lives. This is Jesus' hand-picked disciples. And here we come to the palace of praise in 2018 and I wonder how many of us really carry the baggage and the burden of unbelief. How many of us really come in here and we really say that we're people of faith but in reality we have more doubt and fear in our lives than the normal Joe out there in the field. I think a lot of times that we do. The disciples had just got into a ship with Jesus to depart over to the other side and they make a statement. They say we have no bread. And when Jesus rebuked them and warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees, they thought and reasoned among themselves saying it is because that we said that we have no bread that the reason why he rebuked us. And Jesus perceived their thoughts. And listen to what he said to them. It's vitally important because our text is being set up by this very occasion and by these very words. Here he says, Jesus looks at them, he perceived their thoughts and he said unto them, why reason you because you have no bread? He said this, he said, Perceive ye not, neither do you understand. Have your hearts, have you hardened your hearts? Now he's accusing the disciples. He's asking them, you're not having any perception. You don't have any understanding. And he says, I want to tell you what your real problem is. You as disciples, as my own followers, begin to harden your heart. And then he says, you have eyes, but you see not. You have ears, but you hear not. And do you not remember 
How are you not understanding? Do you not remember when I break the five loaves among the 5,000? How many baskets full did they have left over? And they say unto him, well, we had 12 basketfuls left, Lord. And then he says, and among the seven, uh, seven fishes that I had, and I fed the 4,000, how many baskets full of uh, fragments did I have left? And they said, well, Lord, you had seven basket loads left. And then he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? Now, he's teaching them a faith principle, living by faith, understanding that he is God, understanding that he's also telling them he's going to die and go by the way of the cross, which they did not like. That is a, a, he does that three different times throughout that chapter. But here he's telling them, why is it that you cannot operate in faith? You're born again into a kingdom that is operating by faith. You must know who I am. You've got to understand the type of God that I am. You've got to understand my ability, my power, my passion, my love. You've got to understand the calling and the mandate that's upon me as your Messiah, as your Lord, as your Savior. How many of us really understand our Savior? How many really understand our Lord like we think that we do? And then the next thing that we see after Jesus says this to his disciples in our text, they come to Bethsaida, that right here's our text, it comes right in on the heels of all of this, and they bring a blind man to him and say, would you heal him? It is so odd to me that any time that Jesus deals with a subject or he teaches a lesson to his disciples, keep an eye out because he always seems to follow up with an object lesson through a supernatural event. Anytime that you read where Jesus rebukes or he chastises or he corrects his disciples, look at the next events that take place in their, their, their lives because Jesus usually ends up giving them an object lesson so they can see it fleshed out or they can see it play out with their physical eyes. And the first thing that we see is Jesus takes this blind man by the hand and he leads him out of town. We'll describe what that sets about, you know, what that's all about out of here in a few moments. And then we see him spitting in this blind man's eyes and he puts his hands upon him. And then we see something that we never see in scripture ever, ever again. It's only found in one place and it's found right here in our text. You would think that it was, that, you would think that it was Christ using his own spit from his mouth to heal someone that was so unusual. But actually, though it is very rare for those kinds of things to happen, yet Jesus done this on two different occasions. Did you not know that? The Bible tells us that one of them is in the book of Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 31 through 37, Jesus was coming through Decapolis and they bring a man that is deaf. He cannot hear. And according to the Bible, he had an impediment. He had a speech problem. And it is not unnormal for people with a bad hearing to have a speech impediment. Yet that did not stop Christ from caring about normal everyday events. Aren't you glad that God understands that? Aren't you glad that God cares about our everyday problems? Here's a man that he cannot speak well because he's got a hearing problem. He's got two different things going on at the same time. And aren't you God, glad that our God's able to heal multiple things and not just one thing? Aren't you glad they don't, he, just, he don't just care about one but not the other? He cares about every situation in our lives. I love Matthew chapter six when he talks about how that we are worth more than many sparrows and if he takes care of the sparrows of the field, will he not take care of you? And if he clothes the field with grass, will he not clothe you and take no thought for tomorrow for tomorrow so take thought for itself and the sufficiency of the day is the evil thereof and he tells you about his love and he tells you about his care and he tells you about his power and yet so much of the time we read that stuff and we go right through it and we come in here fearful and bound and depressed and oppressed and whimpering and crying and murmuring and complaining and yet Jesus would look at us and say hey don't you understand don't you understand who I am Somebody help me preach right here. 
It's not unnormal for people with bad hearing to have a speech impediment. And Jesus took this man aside from the multitude and he put his fingers into his ears. He does something very unusual. He spits in his hands and he touched the man's tongue. Now, he then looked up toward heaven and he said, be open. And then the Bible says straightway his ears were open and the string of the tongue was loosed and he spake plain and clearly. Can you imagine someone spitting on their hands and their fingers and then putting it in your mouth and touching your tongue? That's what Jesus did. Now that's odd, that's unusual. I dare to say that if I'd copy or mimic that, that procedure today that there would probably not be very many takers. There'd be nobody here with a speech impediment. Everybody just got miraculously healed. Amen? Amen. We copy a lot of things. Why don't we copy that? We copy and mimic things all the time. We want this Peter to be like Peter's shadow where it heals somebody. Why don't we be like Jesus? Get a big loogie. Amen. And then stick it in somebody's tongue. We copy a lot of things. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You better be anointed and have results because if you don't, someone's going to knock your block off. Can I have an Amen. But this is what Jesus did. Another place we see Jesus spitting to heal is in the book of John chapter nine, verse one through seven. This is where Jesus passed by a man that was born blind. He was born from his very birth blind. And the disciples asked him and questioned, who did sin, this man or his parents that, that he was born blind? What, which one of them caused this to happen? And Jesus answers them, says, neither was this man born blind, or neither was this man sin that would cause him to be born blind, and neither has his parents sin that caused him to be born blind, but he was born blind so that the works of God should be manifested within him. Then the Bible says that Jesus spit on the ground, he made clay, he made mud in the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And then he told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and when the man had washed, the Bible says his eyes were immediately open. Now, can you imagine have someone spit on the ground Make mud and then take that mud and smear it in your eyes. How about if I'd get a flower pot up here today and everybody's got seeing problems. Everybody got glasses, raise your hand. I've got a pot out there with a bunch of dirt and I'm gonna make a bunch of mud and I'm gonna smear it in your eyes today. How many takers do I have? Not very many. But that mud's gonna be made out of my own spit. Amen? That's what Jesus did. Now, can you imagine that? This is how unusual that God does things at times. So it wasn't the spitting that was the unusual thing that happened in our text because this man in our text, Jesus went up right in his eyes, just spit in his eyes. What an insult. How dirty, how degrading. What does this man think he's doing? He spit in my face. That's what Jesus did. Now, folks, I'm not making this up. Go back and look at it. This is what Jesus did. There is always a reason for Christ doing the things that he did. Can I tell you, man is made out of the dust of the ground and I have a great imagination. You know what I think happened that day when that blind man that was born blind was healed? I think that Jesus just kind of remembered when he was back there in the very creation with his father and he got down and said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. So God created man and he created him in his own image. He created male and female. And all of a sudden, God says, okay, I'm gonna make this man. And he takes dust of the ground and he forms a body. He's doing it out of the clay. Now I wanna tell you what I think Jesus did. He spit in the ground he said, well, I made man the first time I dust, I'm just going to go back, I'm going to form me some new eyeballs. And I believe out of them, him making some clay, he formed some new eyeballs and boom, he just stuck it in the sockets of that man. And when he did, he was able to see all things clearly. He did not use OEM parts or reproductive parts. He used original equipment. He used the dust of the ground. Can I have an amen? 
Oh, I feel like preaching an hour and a half today. Are you with me? We're talking about a marvelous Savior here. We're talking about a marvelous healer. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Savior, our Lord, our Master. Can you give him praise in this house? Stand to your feet and give him praise. Honor him today. Come on, honor him. Honor him. Praise him. Magnify him. He's God. Hallelujah. Oh, what a marvelous Savior. Yeah. Wonderful Savior. You may be seated. We should never question him why he does the things that he does. Never question the Lord. Christ healed in various ways to show us that he was not restricted to a set rule or a fixed rule and that he was not limited to one way of healing because this showed us his kingly prerogative. Hey, there we go. To heal however he said fit. That's a tongue-twisting word right there. The unusual thing that happened was that this is the only healing in the gospel This is the only healing recorded in the whole word of God that occurred in stages. You will not find healing like this anywhere else in the whole word of God. This is the only story that records healing in stages. The Bible says that he spit in his eyes and then he laid his hands on him and he asked him, do you see anything? What is it that you see? And the man replies, I see men as trees walking. And then the Bible says that he put his hands again on his eyes, made him look up, and he was restored and saw all men clearly. Now, the question that we all have is what caused Christ to have to pray a second time or what caused Christ to actually have to touch him a second time? Now, let me stop right here and say this. Just because you don't get something the first time doesn't mean you're not gonna get it. Just because something didn't happen when you wanted it does not mean that the delay is an answer saying no. That's where we got to get in just because your faith can be tested at times. Can I have an amen? And if Jesus had to touch someone a second time, how much more do we have to touch them? So if you're here and you're in need today, I don't care if, if, you, if you have to go through the prayer line 50 times, you may be there the 49th time, but just keep on going, honey, because I want to tell you there'll come a time that God will meet your need. Can I have an amen? I don't care how many times it takes. If it takes God twice to do something, it can take us a thousand times in order to do what Jesus can do. And I want to tell you, if the Lord had to do it twice, how many more times are we going to have to do it ourselves? Now, but I want you to understand that what took place there was, this was, a con- this was connected to the object lesson that he was trying to teach his disciples. Everything Jesus does has purpose tied to it. Do you not understand that? Jesus never randomly done anything without a reason for just doing it. He didn't do things on the spare of Everything was planned. Everything's detailed. Jesus don't act out of impulse. or He don't act out of the spur of the moment. He has a plan for everything that he does. And he stays in the confinements of that plan. He never lets anything persuade him to get outside of who he is. Can I have an amen? Everything he does is structured. It's ordered. It's intentional. He does it by choice. He does it because it's his will to do it. And no one's going to bend him to do anything that's out of his will to do. Can I have an Amen. I don't care who you are. I want you to understand Jesus does everything intentionally. This two-stage healing was for the purpose. It was an object lesson, not only to his disciples, but even to us in this 21st century today. He does this to reveal a deeper meaning than just his ability to perform a miracle. How many knows that Jesus performs miracles? That wasn't what he was trying to get across in this. He's healed a lot of blind men prior to this. 
He's raised people from the dead prior to this. There's a lot of things that took place and Jesus is not out just to prove that he can do miracles. That's not his intent here. Notice before he heals him, he leads him out of the town. That's very much. And matter of fact, let me just stop right here and get ahead of my notes. But after he heals him, he said, you don't go back into that town and don't you tell anybody in that town what's happened to you. Why did he do that? Why did he take this man by the hand and lead him out of the town? First of all, Jesus did not heal him in the village of Bethsaida because he had already been moved to judgment upon this town due to their unbelief. Matter of fact, look in the book of Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. This is where Jesus says, whoa. And when you hear the words whoa, that's always tied to judgment. You never want God to say woe to you. Whoa. That is a rebuke. It's a stern word that carries with it a follow-up of judgment. The woes of revelation, you don't want to be there. Can I have an amen? There is woe unto thee, Chorazan. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. There it is. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, if they had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes, and they would have remained to this day. He said, I want to tell you something. If the works that were done in you would have been done in some of the most vile, corrupt, ungodliest places in the world, they would have, not, they would have remained and the judgment would have been spared because they would have paid attention and they would have come to understanding of who I am. But said, you've had all kinds of works done in front of you, and yet you've not come to believe. Jesus had that own problem in his own hometown. He could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief, and he had to leave them because of unbelief. Unbelief is the biggest, biggest spirit that we fight within the body of Christ. It wars against us. I bind the spirit of unbelief in this place right now. It's horrible. It's mean. It's vicious. It destroys faith. And faith is what gives us the victory to overcome the world. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the enemy is out to attack our faith by unbelief and doubt. Jesus just says to the city that the miracles that I've done in you has not had a lasting effect. And because of that, I'm not going to do no more miracles in front of you. He literally leads this man out of that city because he would not allow anything to work in the house. And I want to tell you something. A church that is plagued with unbelief will not have signs and wonders working in it. Can I have an amen? Don't believe me, go to Jairus' home where they're all crying and the woman's dead and Jesus said she's not dead and they all laugh him to scorn and he has to put them out before he can bring healing to her. He has to get rid of doubt and out of the house. And I want to tell you something, folks. It is true that sometimes we want to hang on to everybody, but sometimes people leave and they go and they, they, they just get caught up in situations where they're full of doubt and unbelief and they end up believing us. Sometimes it's better to get the unbelief out than it is to keep it in because it hinders the body of Christ. It wars against the body of Christ. It's mean, it's a vicious spirit, and it's contagious. If you don't believe me, you just get around people that complain all the time, and before long, you'll become a complainer. You get around people that gripe all the time, that's negative all the time, you'll become negative yourself. And sometimes you'll wake up and you'll become negative about people and about churches and about pastors, and you'll look and you don't even know why. It's because of the environment that you sit under. It is so contagious, all of a sudden you'll become a complainer and you don't even know what you're complaining about. You don't even have the full facts of why you feel the way that you feel. All you know is you feel it. It's unbelief. Can I have an amen? But this is why that he rebukes the Pharisees that came to him looking for a sign. As a matter of fact, in this, in our text, above our text, he uses a softer language than he does in the other gospels. He looks in the other gospels about this story and says, you are an evil generation. Called them evil because of their unbelief. And he says, because of your unbelief, there shall be no signs given unto this generation. You're an evil generation, you Pharisees. And then he warns and rebukes the disciples 
when they said we have no bread, he warns them of becoming like that of the Pharisees. Jesus wasn't going to do any more miracles in Bethsaida. He wasn't going to do any more signs and wonders in front of the Pharisees. And then he looks at his disciples and he says this to them, are you going to be like the Pharisees? I'm going to ask the body of Christ here today. Are you going to be like the Pharisees? Oh, religious in nature. Oh, they know everything about the law. Oh, they're caught up in church service. They're caught up in ritual. They do everything that they're supposed to do in rituals and all that. But are you going to be like the Pharisees, old palace of praise? Is that what we're about? And we're about our rituals going through the mechanics of worship coming in here and saying that we're Christians by name and going through all of the right stuff in order to justify ourselves and say, look, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I pay my tithes. Come on. That's what the Pharisees done. And then he asked them, how can you be so blind having been with me for so long? He said, you've been with me a long time. How can you be so blind? How can you not believe after seeing all the miracles that I have done in front of you? That's what he asked them. Don't you understand anything that I've been saying to you is what Jesus asked them? Why is it that you have eyes but you can't see? Why is it that you have ears but you can't hear? That's the scripture he says. He asked them, do you not recall? Do you not remember when I break the loaves among so many? He said, do you not remember when I fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children with five little loaves of bread and two small fishes? He said, how many baskets did I have left over? He makes them answer it. Well, you had 12. He makes them answer it so that they could recall the miracle. He says, hey, when I fed, this, the, when I fed the 4,000, he said, at the end of feeding them 4,000 is when I had seven small fishes and a few loaves of bread. How many baskets did I have left over? And they said, well, Lord, you had, you had seven baskets left over. Do you not recall when I fed them? Do you not understand? And then you have the gall to come before me and say, we have no bread? You got the gall to say that we don't have anything to eat? Did I not provide bread in the wilderness for the church in the Old Testament? Come on. Did I not rain down manna? Am I not a God of provision? Have I not even already taught you how to pray our Father which art in heaven? How it would be thy name? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Have you not caught anything that I've taught you? Do you not know I'm the sustainer and the lifter up of your lives? Do you not know I'll take care of you? Hello? Why is it that you're falling apart here right after I've done miracles right in front of you? You're grappling because you don't have bread. You're speaking a negative that you don't have bread. Oh, come on, somebody help me preach right here. How many of us is caught, caught up in the same kind of junk in the body of Christ? Why don't God do this? Why don't God do that? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? Oh, everything in the world's falling apart. God hates murmuring. He brought judgment upon the children of Israel in the wilderness for it. And yet in all the stuff that is actually real and happening, it's reality to us, yet right in the midst of it stands, the son of the living God said, I'm your rescuer, I'm your bucket, your shield, your high tower, I'm your rear guard. I'll take care of you. I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I'm a friend that's sticking closer than a brother. If God be for you, who can be against you? Don't you understand this? Don't you understand this? And if anything happens to you, all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and to them who are called according to your purpose. Don't you understand? I'm allowing it to happen for a reason. I don't do things without a spite. The steps of the good man are ordered of the Lord. He knows you're rising up, you're lying down, you're going out, and you're coming in. Come on, somebody help me preach right here. Now, if he says that to the disciples, do you not say, think he's saying that to every one of us here in this building today? Of course he is. Can you recognize he's saying who I am? 
or are you going to be like the Pharisees and be unwilling to accept my teachings even though I continually have performed miracles of you to prove who I am? He said, are you not going to believe in me? Are you, are you not going to recognize who I am and the works that I have been doing in front of you and the works that I have been sent to do? Do you not recognize it? Do you not understand the kingdom in which you're birthed? Do you not understand the kingdom of God and the provisions of that kingdom? There was tension between Jesus and disciples concerning the teachings that they simply did not get. They didn't understand it. And I wonder how many of us really don't get it. How many of us really don't understand why we're saved? How many of us really don't get this thing? It's just a thing we do, it's protocol. It's what we've been brought up to do. It's what we've been told we're going to do. It's what's expected out of us. We do everything out of expectation and responsibility and what everybody dictates to us and what we think's right. But that's the reason why we do it. But we really don't get it. Hello? Oh, Lord. Woo! The Holy Spirit's about to bring a rainbow word to us right here. How many of us really understand what it means to be birthed and living and breathing, existing and moving in the kingdom of God? This is why that in him we live, we move and we have our being. How many of us understand this? How many understands that though we think we're bound, yet we're free? Come on, somebody help me breathe. Though there's strongholds all around us, yet we're free. Though they may shackle my hands, they can shackle me all they want, I'm free. We don't gripe and moan and cry when we're shackled and chained up. We sing praises at midnight. Amen. We don't, we don't fall apart at every little wind of doctrine and opposition that comes our way. We stand up tall and rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We've done all things with edifying and uplifting and encouragement of heart. We make melody in our hearts and we praise the Lord and magnify him whether it's hell or high water, snow or vapor. Go to the Psalms 49, you can see it. Everything that takes place, there's a purpose. There's a reason. Can I have a name for the child of God? But how many of us really understand what it means to be birthed and to live in this thing called the kingdom of God? Jesus spitting in this man's eyes and then laying his hands upon him and him being partially healed was him giving them an object lesson of where they were at personally. That's what he was doing. He's trying to resolve the tension between him and them because their misunderstanding was a direct undercurrent to whatever thing that he's trying to do and everything he's trying to accomplish. Can you imagine that? His own hand-picked disciples, the one he come along to do the work is now the ones that's the undercurrent to what he's trying to do. The very people that he chose to be leaders Oh, I pray that the palace of praise be not vessels that undercut the plan and the purpose of God due to our own unbelief and our neglect and our disobedience and our ignorance. That when we come in here that we don't stifle the hand of God from moving because of our own dumbness. Can I have an amen? Oh, hallelujah. Jesus looks at them and he says, I am no longer going to manifest my power in Bethsaida. They'll never see it again. He also says in I want you to know if you're not careful, he said, I, well, let me go on. He says, and I'm no longer going to give any signs and wonders in front of the Pharisees. Now, listen to what he's saying, because the next statement's powerful. Hey, Bethsaida, 
You'll never see my hand move again. Hey, you Pharisees, you know what's going to happen? Signs and wonders ain't going to be given to you. Does that mean he don't do signs and wonders? No, because he looks at a true believer that lives and operates in the kingdom. These signs shall follow them that. That what? Say it again. Say it loud. Believe. He said, no more signs is going to begin the Pharisees. And then he says, and if you're not careful, disciples, I will withdraw myself from you as well if you become like them. Wouldn't it be an awful thing to be void of his presence in the midst of crisis? Wouldn't it be a horrible thing to go through protocol and come in here and put on the religious clothes and the religious actions and do, fulfill protocol, do what's expected, uh, just go through the systems of what everybody you know, tells you is right and wrong, only to find out that really you're nothing more than clothed in a religious garment like the Pharisees, and all of a sudden a crisis hit, and all of a sudden it gets your attention, the crisis always gets our attention, and we start crying out, crying out, but there's nothing going to happen in our lives because we have become like the Pharisees. No sign shall be given to us. No miracles will happen in front of us no more. Oh, but I've been to church for 30 years. God ain't worried about your church attendance. He's worried about the condition of your heart while you're here. I'm preaching better than what you're letting on here this morning. That's a fearful thing to me. And sometimes I wonder, why are we not seeing the signs and wonders and miracles on more of a regular basis? How much unbelief do we really have in the house of God? And how much of us is coming in and literally... Folks not playing church, but going to church, but don't even know what church is all about. We don't even have an understanding of why we're here. We drag in late, we leave early, we half-heartedly worship, we fall down in our seats, move me if you can, preacher. That's kind of attitude in a lot of churches. And then we wonder what in the world is Jesus gonna, why he don't come through with us in the midst of crisis? Because we become like the Pharisees. We have become like Bethsaida. No signs are gonna be given to us because of our regular lifestyle of doubt and our regular lifestyle of unbelief. Because wherever there's faith, there's action. Wherever there's faith, there's faithfulness. Wherever there's faith, there's life. There's exuberance, there's passion. Come on. When we come in here and we don't have passion, it's a sign that we're where the disciples is at. Being rebuked by Jesus. Amen? Oh, Lord. I don't have to stay there long. Does everybody get it without me having to meddle in your business? It makes it a lot easier on a pastor when I don't have to meddle in your business. Amen? But this blind man actually was used as a metaphor for his disciples. His blindness functions as a metaphor for the disciples' lack of understanding. He reveals the kind of relationship that the disciples really had with him when he says, do you not perceive or understand in light of everything that I've done in front of you? And again, remember what he said? Do you have eyes and you see not? You have ears and you hear not? And yet you hear the words. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. It's high time to awake. He gives us scriptures all throughout the Word of God about our slumberness, our slothfulness, our, our, our inability to, to respond because of apathy, our lack, uh, our lack of zeal and our lack of, our lack of desire and our lack of, uh, our, our lack of love and devotion with Jesus. And he asked us, do you have ears? You can't hear? He was using the man's blindness to reveal to them their spiritual blindness. He's saying, hey, you're just like this blind man. 
Their, their, their confusion about the mission and the identity of Jesus indicates that like the blind man, their vision was partial. Amen? This is why I ask, have you been with so long with me, but you still do not know me? You've been with me all this time and seen all these miracles. You've heard me teach. You've heard me give, expound. You've heard me preach. You've seen me raise dead. You've seen me heal. And you, do you still not know who I am? The disciples had not seen all things clearly at this point, And he's telling them they're in trouble. They have not fully understood everything Christ has expanded them both in words and both in actions. Though they were called alongside of Jesus and invested their time, forsook their nets and followed him. Yet they did not fully comprehend or understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now this is where it gets really, really touchy in all of our lives. Not only did they not fully understand Jesus' role. I can kind of understand that. He's God. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And they're past finding out. I can understand us not fully understanding everything about Jesus. But they also failed to see their own role within the kingdom. Now let me say this, they were blinded to what Christ was expecting out of them. And I wonder how many of us fully understand the role of the kingdom of God that we play. Are you in the kingdom? Are you born again? Then you're born again into the kingdom. Amen. That's why the thief on the cross said, remember me when you go into your kingdom because he knew there was a spiritual kingdom. There were pilgrims, were strangers, were citizens of heaven. That's what Peter said. And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying to them, you've been birthed in the kingdom, but you don't fully see because you don't even fully understand your own role within that kingdom. I wonder how many of us fully understand the, our role in the kingdom of God. I think many don't because the secular has far more influence over us than that of the kingdom does. Our own priorities show us that we are only partially seeing. All too often in scripture when Jesus would ask his disciples, what is it that you want me to do? Go back and study that. It's amazing. Because there were times when Jesus looked at his own disciples and said, what is it you want me to do? Every time to their shame, they failed in their answer. Every time. When he asked John and James, what do you want us to do? They, they, they asked things in the light of their own desire. You know what they said? We want positions of power. We want to sit on your right hand and your left hand when you go into your kingdom. You know what the disciples wanted? They wanted power to cast out devils. And all of us seem to, all of our requests in the body of Christ seems to be, Lord, would you do this? Lord, would you do that? Lord, would you move this? Lord, would you move that? Lord, would you make this more? It's always us petition. Ask, 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 ask. And we never come to the conclusion that Solomon did when he asked for wisdom and he asked nothing for himself. Whew. In other words, guys, we are birthed into the kingdom, not for the kingdom to serve us, but for us to serve the kingdom. And by us serving the kingdom, we get the divine privileges of being served. We got it backwards. Oh, I got saved so God can be a Santa Claus in the sky who comes down and does great things for me. And in reality, God said, no, I chose you that you'd go out and shake up the world and be a disciple for me. Am I preaching all right, Zach? But we come into the house of God with this attitude. Oh, come on, God, give me, give. all of our songs are geared about us. Come down, God, touch us, bless us, move us, inspire us, edify us, oh, touch us, make us feel good. And all along, our songs are to be about you are holy, you are magnificent, you are mighty because we praise you, we extol thee, thou art an awesome God. It ought to be us praising him and our passion ought to be directed to him and in return, God will be blessed and touch us. 
Oh, hallelujah. We got it backwards. Jesus wanted to see, Jesus wanted them to see and to discern spiritual matters, but they were caught up in the religious political maneuvers. They were caught up in the hustle and bustle of life. Jesus called it the cares of life. Matter of fact, the word says, don't be caught up in the cares of life unless they choke you, Jesus says in Matthew 13. And you become unfruitful. But you're caught up in the everyday, daily, and grind, the business decisions and the pressure of business, the pressure of the secular. You're all caught up in going to and fro throughout the earth, doing your thing, going your places, making sure everybody's happy and the children are happy and woo, we're just a good Christian family because we're happy. Not understanding that nothing is being accomplished for the kingdom of God. We're blind partially. We've been birthed in the kingdom. We see dimly but we don't see the full scope of what he's saying to us. What we're to be, what we're to accomplish, what we are to do, where we're to go, what we're to say, how we're to act, how we're to walk. He put us in our places of position for a purpose and a destiny and a calling, a high calling in Christ Jesus. By Jesus healing this man partially, he was saying, I have also touched you, but you're standing in the middle you're the middle man today. He was saying, you're just like the blind man who see men walking like trees. He was revealing that they seen the things of the kingdom dimly, which disenabled them to know Christ's true identity. Hello? Though they had come to see him dimly, yet they had not come to know Jesus in his fullness. How many of us really know Jesus in his fullness? Trust him in his fullness. They had blurred vision. I tell you, one of the things I hate, somebody come to me and they said, now when you get in your 50s, you'll be wearing glasses like the rest of us. I said, no, I won't. My eyesight's perfect, man. I was 50 years old at that time. I had 20-20 vision. And now everywhere I go, can I borrow your glasses? That stinks. It's all about lighting. It ain't about my eyes. We just got poor lighting around this world. Amen? It's odd to me, everywhere I go, there's no light anymore. And I have to borrow someone's glasses to magnify what I, so I can read. And Jesus is looking and he's saying throughout the church world, as a whole throughout the body of Christ, there are people with blurred vision. They don't see clearly. Come on. They don't know my true identity. They've never come to the full realization of my fullness. They don't understand purpose. All they understand is, hey, the provision and the promises of the future events because they got born again not understanding that there's a purpose and a plan and there's things that we are to do down here so that we can enjoy heaven up there. Can I have an amen? I'd like to have a little bit of heaven on earth, wouldn't you? Now watch this. They had blurred vision. What a miserable place to be in. Having just enough knowledge of what could be or what might be but not enough insight to actually obtain it. I'm afraid that many of us are the man in the middle. We see things afar off, but not close up. We have glimpses of him, but he has never fully been unveiled before us. We have been enlightened, but not transformed. We have had insight, but not revelation. And there's big differences in all of this. We have learned to look into spiritual things, but we've not learned how to uncover and understand spiritual things. We think we know him, but we only see him partially. 
We have religion, but we don't have any relationship. We have a form, but no force that really governs our lives without having a, power, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. We have eyes but cannot see. We have ears that cannot hear. And it shows by how we operate and live in the kingdom of God. We, we, are, we are actually telling off on our own selves by the way we live. And I'm afraid at best we have cloudy, cloudy spiritual vision. We try to glean from our first experience and our first encounter that we had with Christ, but we never push to the second touch. Oh, hallelujah. Can I tell everybody here that we need to push to the second touch? Salvation is our acquaintance stage. We're just getting to know him. That's when we had our first encounter. It's like, whoa, we're overwhelmed. Don't worry, I lost my spit rag. That means there's gonna be a little bit more of Jesus operating in this service. And the truth of the matter is, folks, that you and I, if we're not careful, will only have a partial glimpse of Jesus, never fully understanding his identity, never fully understanding his fullness, and we operate then in a fleshly mentality that literally undercurrents the very thing that God wants to accomplish. That's why that Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're beauty. Get behind me, Satan. You savor us the things that be of men and not the things that be of God. You're desiring the things of flesh. You're desiring the things of men. You're desiring political correct politicians, politics stuff. He said, that ain't what I'm about. I'm about the kingdom. Come on, somebody help me preach. Oh, hallelujah. Many never move to discovering their purpose, their mandate, their calling, their, their responsibility to the kingdom. We're saved for a reason. We, we see men walking like trees. We live under a glimpse instead of an unveiled face. I don't want to just see a glimpse of him. I want to be like Moses and say, show us your glory. Oh, God, show me your glory. Amen. Moses prayed, show me your glory, God. Jesus prayed, not my will be done, but thine be done. He had to crucify himself. He said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The most miserable place to be in is to be the man in the middle. Partially touched, partially healed, partially seeing, you know, partially hearing, only having selective hearing. We, by nature, only hear the things we want to hear and see the things we want to see. Jenny says sometimes, you know, I've got a, I do got a hearing problem. Sometimes I misunderstand what people say. My hearing is gone. I've been around Pentecost music all my life. It's gone. Thank you, choir. Thank you, musicians. I can't hear. Everybody, everybody will start talking. Hey, can't, can't, can't. Hey, can't. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to read lips most of the time. And my wife, she comes in sometimes, says something. I say, what, you're mumbling? I'm not mumbling. Can't listen. You've got what I call selective hearing. <laughs> and in the body of Christ, we are the very exact same way. We only hear what we want to hear. And then when, it be, when we begin to be challenged, we put the brakes on. We only want to stay behind that glass darkly. And we think if we remain ignorant, we won't stand accountable. If I remain ignorant, I won't be held accountable. Oh, yes, you will, because God once winked at ignorance, but now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because you have the word of God. You have in your hands at your disposal the very ability to tap into the will of God for your life. And if you choose not to do it, you'll stand accountable before God. Can I have an amen? You will stand accountable for your actions, your words, your deeds, your labor, your service, your sacrifice, your prayer life, your devotional life. 
You're going to stand before a holy God one of these days, and if you play ignorance, he's going to laugh at you. He's going to say, you Pharisee. Come on. Help me preach. But Jesus then also gives them hope in our object lesson. To everyone that is partially seeing. <laughs> to everyone that's struggling in that place of chaos. Trying to feel their way out. Trying to know their way. Jesus says, hey, you disciples, you don't have eyes that see right now. You don't have ears that hear right now. You don't have a full understanding. You've not grasped who I am. But <laughs> I've got a second touch for you. I'll give you the opportunity to know me once more. I've not cast you off. I've not thrown you out like I have the Pharisees as of yet. He says in verse 25, after that he put his hands again upon his eyes, made him look up, he was restored, saw every man clearly. How many wants to see every man clearly? How many's ready to see clearly in the kingdom? We have to learn to desire the things of the kingdom more than the things of the world, folks. We have to mind the things of the spirit more than the things of the flesh. Here's how Paul put it. He said, set your affections on the things above and not on the things of this earth. We quote it all the time and we just quote, we've learned these scriptures and they don't mean anything to us. Matthew 5 and 6, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. They are the ones that's gonna be filled and touched and blessed and overrunning and having signs and wonders and miracles and the touch of God on their life. What did he say in Matthew 6 and 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. Do you want a second touch? Do you want to experience Christ's fullness? Then I want to tell you if you do, you have to understand discipleship. You have to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and not just a belonger or a thronger or a participator or a, a, a Christian sitting on a pew somewhere. You've got to learn what it means to be a disciple. Listen to the wording that Jesus used in discipleship in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. First thing he says is, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now he talks about denial, taking up a cross, carrying burdens, following Jesus. There's a lot to preach on there. I ain't got time. The next thing he says, for whosoever shall try to find his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. Then listen to the next verse. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for it? So in other words, he's saying, are you gonna be like the Pharisees and trade the crown of the glory of the kingdom of God for nothing more than the things of this world and you're caught up in between two worlds and you halt between two opinions and I can't do a thing for you because of your own unbelief. And the next verse he says, and hey, I like this, because he ties it right in here about the judgment. He said, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his holy angels and then he shall reward everyone according to their own works. Wow. He said, you're gonna stand before the cattle before everything you've done, everything you said, everywhere you go, everything you've done, whether good or bad, you're gonna stand before the Lord on all of this stuff. And he said, I wanna ask you a question. Are you serving in the kingdom or are you serving yourself? Are you compassionate about the spiritual application of your life or are you more concerned about the everyday cares of life? That's what he's asking. People that stand in the middle, they don't understand purpose. They stand on the outside looking in. They have no spiritual confidence. Their vision is blurred at best, which creates an image that is distorted and not real. And this is how people become to believe lies 
And they become deceived because they don't see things clearly. And then they observe what they see and then they make a doctrine out of it. But what they're seeing is false. The man said, I see, but I don't see clearly. But you can, but what the problem of it is, if you don't go on to the fullness, you'll draw conclusions by what you see. Amen? They do not have a clear vision of what it means to live in the kingdom. They don't know anything about kingdom living. I'm going to be closing in just a few minutes. Uh, come across something this week that was so inspiring. When the Titanic went out and sailed, said that God can't even sink the ship. You know, that's what they said. Thing was huge. Someone just told me last night on the phone that the biggest cruise liners that we have, Disney cruise liners, you've seen them big ships, man, they're like the size of buildings. It would take, I forget how many of them could actually fit in the Titanic. That's how big the Titanic was. That's how monstrous it was. But the Titanic, when it went down, a man went to where it was launched. He put him up a big pole, made him a banner on each side. On one side, it said the rescue and the saved, and the other side said the lost. And every time they would receive word, he would put a mark to those that were lost, and then he would put a mark to those that was rescued. And at the end of it, then he said these words. He said, but notice... They were either rescued and saved or they were lost. There was no one that was on the pole in the middle. Because Christ, the middle man on the cross, paid a way to where he made you make a choice whether you're gonna be on this side or that side, but you can't serve two masters. You'll either make him Lord or he'll be Lord of none. Wow. That's where we're at this morning. And in closing, before I go any further, the Lord wanted me to add this. There are also people here that are in the middle and they're healing. They are partially healed but not totally whole. Touch but not totally healed. Better but not complete. And the Lord sent me by this morning and said, look up. Get your focus right. He's asking, I'll touch you once and I'll touch you again. But notice, because one of the things I missed in this scripture, whether you're needing a second touch for a healing or whether you're needing the second nuts to know the fullness of God. You know what he done? He went out and took and put his hands on his eyes and said, look up. He made that man change his focus. No longer could he look at the things of the earth. He had to be upward looked. His attention, his affections, everything had to be focused upon heaven. And for you and I to be healed and for you and I to be all that God wants, for you and I to understand who we are in Jesus and our responsibility in Jesus, and if you and I are gonna be true disciples of Jesus, we gotta look upward. We gotta keep our eye on the author and the finish of our faith who endured the cross, despised the shame, and to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. Woo! Praise God. We gotta keep our eyes on the master. Would you stand with me this morning? Hallelujah.